The Old Testament reading today is going to come from Isaiah chapter 2, if you would turn there. And the New Testament reading sermon text for today is Revelation 6, 12 through 17. In Isaiah 2, we have a prophecy concerning how things will be in the latter days. Um, I think it is important before I read this chapter that we remember that many of these prophecies that are contained in the Old Testament have a fulfillment that is rather progressive so that there is an already and not yet aspect to them. Uh, some things that are said here have already done to be fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. Some things will not be fulfilled entirely until the second coming. Uh, but certainly Isaiah chapter 2 is an interesting text and a powerful one that speaks to how things will go in the latter days. Isaiah writing hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Let's read now Isaiah 2, starting in verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to the chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rocks and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is poured out, that is proud and lofty, excuse me, against all that is lifted up. And it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves and the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they had made for themselves to worship. The moles and the bats enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Isaiah chapter 2. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. Here we come to the sixth seal. Opened by Christ. 
Christ received this scroll from the, hand, the right hand of the Father and he has progressively opened seals. One through five we have already considered, but when he opened the sixth seal, John says, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation 6, 12 through 17. So far the reading of God's holy word. We do pray that the Lord would bless the preaching and then later the application of the scriptures as well. It was about a week ago that I read a message on one of those church signs uh, that really bothered me. Uh, church signs tend to bother me. I don't like them. We have our own building. Let it be known now we will not have a church sign. Uh, it's very difficult to communicate anything meaningful to the world in one sentence or something like that. Um, but this one irritated me in, in, in a uh, particularly um, intense way. It was particularly bothersome. And here's what it said. It simply says this. Rejoice, Jesus is coming very soon. You might be thinking, well, well, What's the trouble with, with that, that saying? Well, two things. things. One, I think the word very is presumptuous. Jesus is coming very soon. How do you know that? How, how do you know that? We all agree that he will come again. And then he will. And we also agree that he will come quickly. Like a thief in the night. That's certain. It's clearly revealed in the scriptures. And so we know that Christians should live with a constant sense of expectation. That also is true. But to declare with such certainty to all who drive by that Jesus is coming very soon seems to go beyond what the scriptures have revealed. Did not Jesus explicitly say, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the sons of the Father only. So that was the first thing that kind of irritated me. This is. This is uh, really bold declaration to the world, everyone driving by. Jesus is coming very soon. Uh, but really it was the exhortation to rejoice that bothered me the most. Rejoice, Jesus is coming very soon, the sign said. Uh, now if this was the title of a sermon that was to be delivered to, to, be delivered to Christians, I, I certainly would not complain about the word rejoice. In fact, I probably think that's what it was, the title of a sermon. To be delivered to those who profess faith in Christ, but here, uh, instead of being given to the people of God, the title of the sermon is displayed to uh, the world on the sign. Everyone that drives by, therefore, is being encouraged to rejoice because Jesus is coming very soon. Uh, indeed, it is right for those who have faith in Christ to rejoice at the thought of Christ's return. Wouldn't you agree with me? It is it right is for those who have faith in Christ to rejoice at the thought of his return. Indeed, the one who cries, the one who has faith in him, who has been washed by his blood, whose sins have been forgiven, who have received Christ's righteousness as their own, being justified by faith in him, and adopted as the children of God. Uh, they should rejoice at the thought of Christ's return, but this exhortation to rejoice was delivered not to those in Christ, but to all who passed by. 
without a doubt, many, if not most of them, do not have faith in Christ. And so the question is this, should they be encouraged to rejoice in the thought of return? The Holy Scripture say no. To the non-Christian, we should not say rejoice, but repent, for Jesus is coming soon. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. For the one who has faith in Christ, the second coming of Christ is pure gospel, isn't it? It's pure good news. It's all good news. It is on that day that all who are in Christ will receive their eternal reward. A reward earned not by themselves but by Christ and received by the instrument of faith. But for the one not in Christ, the one who stands guilty in his or her sin, the second coming of Christ is pure law. It is not gospel. For them it is the day of judgment. The day where they will be be held accountable for their sins. The question will be, have you kept this law perfectly? Since you are trusting not in Christ, but in yourself, have you kept this law perfectly? And what will they say? No, not at all. They're there to be in their sins on that last day. It is not a reason to rejoice. Instead, it should be a motivation to repent. To repent. When Jesus broke the sixth of seven seals on the scroll, which he received from the Father's right hand, John was shown a vision which revealed something about what will happen to the world and to the ungodly on that last day when Christ returns. Uh, the passage can be divided into two parts. First, John was shown the demolition of the universe. And after that, uh, he was shown the wrath of God and of Christ poured out upon the wicked. Uh, the scene is really a terrible scene, isn't it? By terrible, I mean awesome and troubling. And it ought to be troubling for those not in Christ. It should cause us to think with great sobriety concerning the time of the end. I would like to make three general observations about this passage in order to prepare the way for two main points. So three general observations and then later followed by two main points. The first observation is that this vision shown to John and then given to us with him, uh, clearly alludes to other Old and New Testament texts to make this point. We have to remember the Old Testament. Whenever we're reading the book of Revelation, this is here also. Uh, there are many Old Testament texts that should be considered before inter- attempting to interpret Revelation 6, 12 through 17. For example, Isaiah 13, 10 through 13, Isaiah 24, 1 through 6, and also verses 19 through 23. Isaiah 34, 4, these should all be considered. Also Ezekiel 32, 6 through 8, Joel 2, 10, and also verses 30 through 31, Joel 3, 15 through 16, Habakkuk 3, 6 through 11. These passages are clearly behind uh, what was shown to John when the sixth seal was opened. The Isaiah 2 passage that I read at the beginning of the sermon clearly serves as a backdrop for this vision. I hope you were able to pick, pick out uh, the similarities uh, between uh, the texts, text, how in Isaiah, Isaiah 2 there was this prediction that on that last day men would hide themselves in the rocks uh, when the Lord comes to terrify the earth. They do not want to face the judgment. So too that was emphasized here with the opening of the sixth seal. When you read these Old Testament passages, you'll notice that they all speak of God's judgments. Some refer to partial and restrained judgments that will come upon Israel, for example. You know what I mean there. Some have as a reference not final judgment, but partial judgments. And others clearly refer to the final judgment, what will happen on that day. 
the day where God pours out his wrath upon all the earth. But the language of Revelation 6, 12 through 17, is clearly drawn from these texts. The vision that was shown to John assumes a familiarity with these texts. The judgment scene of the sixth seal is cut from the cloth of the judgment scene of the Old Testament. This, this actually becomes very important if we are to interpret this passage properly. Uh, the same actually should be said concerning the rest of the New Testament. I want you to listen to the words of Christ found in Matthew 24, 29. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Hear Jesus' words there, similarity with what was shown to John. Here again his words in Mark 13, 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And listen also to the Apostle Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He's quoting Joel when he reminds his readers uh, that God will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. And so what the Christ, along with his apostles and prophets, say directed elsewhere in the Old Testament and the New, is here portrayed in the vision shown to John, and through John revealed to us the spoken of the sixth seal. Are you getting used to this now? The book of Revelation portrays things, paints a picture of things that are clearly said in a direct way elsewhere in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. We need, we to, need just to just observe, observe that, that fact. fact. Uh, the, uh, the second, second general observation is that this is clearly a depiction of the final judgment here in Revelation chapter 6. It's a depiction of the final judgment. Now, this becomes clear when we first of all notice the connection between seals 5 and 6. There is a connection. Remember that when Christ opened the fifth seal, John, John saw on the, the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And remember that they cried out with a loud voice saying, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will do what? Judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. When are you going to judge and avenge our blood on the earth dwellers, the ones who have persecuted us and who have martyred us? Uh, the, uh, the question, question of the martyrs, martyrs was, Lord, when will this happen? Initially, the answer was simply rest a little longer until the number of your fellow servants and your brothers should be complete who were to be killed as, they, as you yourselves had, had been. But here, with the opening of the sixth seal, something of the final judgment is shown to, to John. Do you see the connection between the fifth and sixth seal then? There's a connection. The martyrs are asking a question. How long will it be, Lord, until you finally judge? Wait a little longer. The time is not yet. But then the sixth seal is opened, and a portrayal of the final judgment is given to, to John. Two, that this is a picture of the final judgment. It is obvious when you notice how complete the judgments in this vision are. The judgments described here are extensive and thorough, aren't they? Notice that every realm of creation is affected. Every realm of creation is affected. The earth and the stars, the sky, the moon, the sun, everything is affected on this day. Notice that all the peoples of the earth, that is, not those, those not in Christ, are also touched. There's a great list given 
Uh, how you can leave this text to come away thinking that this judgment is partially limited, I, I don't know. It seems clearly to be the final judgment that is portrayed here. Three, notice that the events described here are said to happen on the great day of their wrath, there being a reference to God and to Christ. You see it there in verse 17. This vision describes something of what will happen on the great day of God and Christ's wrath. This is not a depiction of a limited period of tribulation, but rather a description of what will happen on that day, the day of God's wrath. Four, notice that the imagery found in the sixth seal will reappear again in Revelation and other places where the final judgment is described. Uh, remember, we'll be shown a glimpse of the final judgment time and time again, different things being emphasized each time. But some of the images found here, some of the words and pictures being found here in Revelation chapter 6 are going to reappear. I, I think of Revelation 16, verses 17 through 21. Here the final judgment is described again with the pouring out of the seventh bowl of God's wrath. We have first seals and then trumpets and then bowls. Each are a cycle of seven in Revelation 16, 17 through 21. We have a description of what happens when the seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out. Listen, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peers of peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake. That also is present in the Revelation 6 passage we're considering today. Such as there had never been since man was on the earth, the great, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities and the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drink, a cup of the wine, and the fury of wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God plague and hail because the plague is so severe. You see the similarities between Revelation 16 and Revelation 6. There is mention of earthquake and also the fact that islands fled away and also mountains were brought low. So you can recognize the repeated reference to these things. There is a connection then between Revelation 6, the opening of the sixth uh, seal, and, and, and uh, Revelation 16, the opening of the seventh, or the pouring out of the seventh bowl. Uh, the point is this the vision shown to John with the opening of the sixth seal is clearly a depiction of the final judgment. The, final judgment. Uh, the third general observation that, uh, is that here we have proof that the book of Revelation is organized, not chronologically, but thematically. The book clearly recapitulates. It tells the same story over and over again from different vantage points. Um, the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, futurist types tend to want to interpret this vision as if it were describing something other than the final judgment. They need it to be a description of a temporary, restrained, and limited judgment. Why do they need this? It is because their system rests heavily upon the idea that the book of Revelation is organized chronologically. In their view, the events described in Revelation chapter 20, for example, must happen historically after the events described in Revelation chapter 19. You've heard me say this before a few times, haven't you? So repetitive on this point. Uh, but it's important. You and I were brought up according to this tradition, probably, when we read the book of Revelation, we think that it is organized chronologically. The chronology of the book of Revelation is going to match the chronology of what happens in human history. 
so that when we read chapter 19 and then we move on to chapter 20, we think in our minds that what happens in chapter 19 is going to come before what is going to happen in this world as described by chapter uh, 20. This, this reference here in Revelation chapter what? 6 to the final judgment proves the point that the book is not organized chronologically, but thematically. If it were organized chronologically, then we would expect that the book of Revelation would be wrapping up pretty soon, right? But it doesn't. It goes on all the way to chapter 22. How can that be? If we've now come to the final judgment, the last day, and we're not even you know, a third of the way through the book, how can it be that it is organized chronologically? It is not. It is organized thematically. It recapitulates. It tells the same story over and over again from different vantage points. The fact that the birth of Christ is portrayed in chapter 12 also proves the point. At the end of chapter 11, the seventh trumpet is blown, which again describes what will happen on that last day. But in chapter 12, we are taken back to the birth of Christ. The chronological order of the book does not match the order of history from beginning to end. Uh, The fact that we are given a glimpse of the final judgment in chapter 6 proves this very point. The sealed cycle has now brought us to the time of the end. The first four seals revealed the four horsemen who were permitted by God to roam the earth. And when did they start doing that? Well, they do it even now. They were roaming the earth in the days of John. Indeed, they were even roaming the earth in the days of Zechariah. Do you remember that? He saw the horsemen too. So the first four seals describe how things are going to be in this world. There will be wars and rumors of wars and famines. Nation will rise up against nation. Men will fight with one another constantly. The fifth seal revealed what happens to martyrs when they die. They are alive with Christ. Even now. Is this future? No, it is now that martyrs, those who have died in Christ, are present with with Christ. And now the sixth seal takes us to the time of the end, giving us a glimpse of how things will go on that last day, which is the great day of God and Christ's wrath. But chapter 6 is not the last chapter in the book of Revelation. The book consists of 22 chapters. This is so only because the book recapitulates time and time again. The same will be said regarding the relationship between chapters 19 and 20 when we finally get there. Chapter 19 will take us to the end with the pouring out of the seventh bowl. But chapter 20 will take us back to the first coming of Christ, describing to us how things will be in this age between his first and second coming, now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, having defeated and bound the strong man, and having received the kingdom that was already at hand in the days of his earthly ministry, but not yet consummated. Did you, did you get that last paragraph there? Those of you who have studied uh, this issue know the significance of it. Revelation chapter 20 does not describe a future millennium, it describes what we are in now. Christ is already ruling and reigning. He has found the strong man. He did so at his first coming. And so the book is not organized chronologically so that the chronology of the book matches the chronology of human history. Instead, just like Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the book recapitulates. What am I saying? Have you ever read Genesis 1 and 2? You have two perspectives given, one right after the other, on the creation event. They do not contradict one another, but they give a different vantage point uh, on the same event. Um, 
now that we have made these general observations, uh, let us consider two main principles drawn from the text itself. Uh, they are these. One, in the end, the heavens and the earth will be dissolved. And two, in the end, all peoples of the earth will be subject to the wrath of God and Christ. First, see that in the end, on that last day, the heavens and the earth, as we know them now, will be dissolved. Look at verse 12 of Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, John looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig trees, uh, fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale or a strong wind. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I want you to notice that the created world, the created world is here broken down to seven parts. One, the earth will be shaken by a great earthquake. Two, the sun will become black as sackcloth. Three, the full moon will become like blood. Four, the stars of the sky will fall to the earth. Five, the sky will vanish like a scroll that is being rolled up. Six, every mountain will be removed from its place. And seven, every island will be removed from its place. You've grown comfortable now with the book of Revelation's use of numbers, particularly the number seven. It symbolizes something total or complete, doesn't it? And so why is creation broken up like this with a list of seven? I think the point is clear. Uh, the final judgment will affect not just humanity, but all of the created world. In the end, on that last day, there will be a radical, total, and complete disruption of the current order of things. Peter said so in his epistle. I want you to listen carefully to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 1-10. through He says, now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that was then, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up, that means kept or preserved, for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will, be, will, will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be Peter is here setting forth uh, to his readers this idea that the world as we now know it, though it continues on day after day, month after month, season after season, as if everything is just going to go on just like this forever, right? Um, there will be a day when the Lord returns uh, where this world will be 
to use Peter's language here, dissolve. So what Peter says in a most direct way concerning the dissolution of the heavens and the earth is depicted in the vision shown to John when the sixth seal is broken by Christ. Some wonder how to take the words of Peter when he says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Uh, the question that is often asked is this, will the creation be dissolved as in completely done away with and replaced with something totally new? Have you ever wondered about that? What is described here by Peter and also in, in Revelation. Is it going to be that this, this world as we know it is just going to be thrown away completely and then something new will be brought in, the new heavens and the new earth? Is that how we are to understand the word new in reference to the new heavens and the new earth? Some say yes. Dissolved means completely done away with and replaced with something new. Others say no, we are to understand all of this language as referring to a radical change, as if something passed through fire and then afterwards is renewed or restored, perhaps we should say glorified. I take the second view. And in the end, the heavens and the earth will be dissolved, as in destroyed or broken down before being renewed. In other words, I believe there will be a relationship between the new heavens and the new earth and the old one that we now live in. Uh, but the new one will far supersede the old in regard to glory. I want you to think for a moment about the relationship between Christ's earthly body and his resurrected spiritual and glorified one. Think of the relationship between those two things, right? His, His earthly body was dissolved, wasn't it? It was, and this is what the Greek word can mean, by the way, it was destroyed and broken down. He went into the grave, but it was that same earthly body that was raised to glory. Think of the relationship between our earthly bodies and the resurrection bodies promised to us. They will be new and glorified bodies, but not unrelated to the ones that we have now. I think the, the same, same is true regarding the relationship between this world and the new heavens and the new earth that will come after this last day. Uh, this world and, and all that's in it will be dissolved, but the Lord will uh, bring in a new creation, a restored creation on that last day. Secondly, see that in the end, all the peoples of the earth will be subject to the wrath of God and of Christ. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. I want you to notice here that all of humanity is broken into seven parts. One, the kings of the earth. Two, the great ones. Three, the generals. Four, the rich. Five, the powerful. Six, the slave. And seven, the free. I'm not going to repeat what I said about number seven just a minute ago, but the same principle applies. It doesn't really be communicated here except that God's wrath is poured out on all humanity will be full and final on this last day. I want you to notice that the majority of the people listed here, though, are powerful, aren't they? Did you notice that? Kings, great ones, generals, rich and powerful. Why is that? Well, I think it is this. These are the ones who are most active in persecuting the martyrs who are seen under the altar crying out, How long, Lord? 
So, so they're, they're the ones emphasized in uh, this uh, list. But they are not the only ones, for the list eventually even comes to mention everyone, even the slave and the free, uh, the free one, all people. And what do they do? They hide themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks to fall on us and hide us. Uh, when this imagery of men hiding in the caves when God appears in judgment is used in the Old Testament, I think Isaiah 2, which we've already read. It is because these men are guilty of idolatry. Did you notice that in the Isaiah 2 passage? What are they doing? Here they are worshiping their idols. By the way, we're not to take this too literally, but rather a portrait is being portrayed. But here they are worshiping their idols, things that they have crafted with their hands. They're living for the things of this world. They are earthbound people. Right? They are people of the earth. And the Lord returns, and they see Him in all of His glory. And what do they do except they begin to run into the caves and throw their idols in to shield themselves from the wrath wrath of God. It's important to make that connection that in the Old Testament, these men and women are, are said to be guilty of idolatry. They are found worshiping God that they have fashioned for themselves. And when the one true God appears, the creator of the heaven and earth, all, all things seen and unseen, they flee. They would rather be buried in the rocks than the faith of face the wrath of God that has now come upon them. Uh, notice here that these are fleeing from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. God and Christ will judge in the end. Some might say, well, isn't it only God's job to judge? Yes, it is God's job to judge, and He has entrusted to Christ with that task, too, given His finished work on uh, the cross. Uh, one question that we might have is this. Will Christians experience this? Will Christians experience this wrath that is said to be poured out on the last day? Will they be among those fleeing from the wrath of God and of the Lamb? Uh, the answer is clearly no. One, remember that this vision is an answer to the question asked by the martyrs. Remember that. It is, not the non is it not the non-Christian, the one who has rejected and opposed God as people who are in view here? Clearly, if we take into consideration the context. Two, these people are called people of the earth. They are the kings of the earth. That phrase will repeat throughout the book of Revelation, always in reference to the non-Christian. The non-Christian non-Christians are of the earth. The Christian belongs ultimately to the heavenly realm. The non-Christian belongs to the earth. George Card, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, notes that the ungodly are at home in this in the present world order. Men of earthbound vision, trusting in earthly security and unable to look beyond the things that are seen in temple. It is these who are subject to the wrath of God and of the Lamb. Three, remember the observation that was just made concerning the imagery in the Old Testament. The men hide themselves in the caves when God appears in judgment. They are hiding because they are idolaters. They are hiding because they do not worship the one true God, but rather worship idols that they have crafted for themselves. These are not worshippers of God, but rather worshippers of self and of the things of this world. Four other passages of Scripture make it clear that although Christians will certainly experience tribulation in this world, even great tribulation, 
they, they will never be subject to the wrath of God or of Christ. That is clearly stated elsewhere in the scriptures. First Thessalonians 5, 1, now concerning the times and seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, you hear the phrase, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are, people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. Christians, you are not in darkness, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. But, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Christian, if they are in Christ, will never be subject to the wrath of God, for Christ is already born in his body on that tree, the wrath of God for us. And in our place, will we experience tribulation in this world? Yes. Sometimes great tribulation. Yes, but will the Christian, the one who is in Christ, ever be subject to the outpouring of the wrath of God? No, never. So it is important to recognize that there will be a rapture on that last day. It will not be a secret rapture, but instead the Lord will return with a trumpet blast. There is no such thing as a secret rapture, especially one that is seven years prior to this last day. The scriptures nowhere teach that. But, but there, there will be a rapture on that last day, so that those in Christ will be caught up with him in the air, only to return with him immediately in judgment. They will not be subject to the wrath of God, but will rather return with him, having been saved from it. Uh, another way to say this is that the last day is going to be a very busy and complex day. A lot will happen on it. Um, and here John gives us just a glimpse of a certain aspect of what, it, of what will happen on, on that last day uh, to the idolaters, to the ungodly who oppose God and Christ. They will be subject to the wrath of God and the Lamb. I want to apply these truths before concluding. Uh, one, I, I do hope that you are seeing, brothers and sisters, that eschatology matters a great deal, eschatology being reference to the study of last things. Eschatology matters greatly. It should have a tremendous impact upon our life. When, when we think about the end, it's going to, what we think about the end will, will affect the course of our lives. It's going to affect the course of our lives. When I travel somewhere that I haven't been before, I always will put the address into Google Maps or something like that. You know? And when I do that, when I put that in point, into Google Maps, it determines a lot about what I will do in order to get to that point. When I leave will be determined by that endpoint. What turn I take first and the second and the third and fourth and then who knows how many more times is going to be determined by that endpoint. And if I happen to get off track, it is that endpoint that will bring me back on to course, isn't it? See, it's eschatology that, that matters, that, that what we believe about the time of the end is going to really in some ways determine how it is that we live our life in the here and in, in the now. 
we have to have clearly settled in our minds um, what the Word of God says about the time of the end so that we might order the whole of our life based upon that truth. Two, I do hope that um, this helps us to cultivate a proper view of the world. I believe that the Christian is to enjoy the good things of this world to the glory of God. I do believe that. This is God's creation, isn't it? It is His creation. We're to engage in this world. We're to enjoy certain aspects of culture and to help enrich it. We're to engage in politics. We're to work with thanksgiving and to the glory of God. I think it's only right that a Christian enjoy nature and the arts, food and drink, friends and family, but never should we live as as though this is our permanent home. We're to recognize the fallenness of this place, the finitude of this place. It's going to come to an end. And so uh, we are not to disengage completely. Indeed, God has called us in His Word to engage and to live in this world in a way that brings glory and honor to Him. But neither should we fall so in love with this world that we live as if this is all there is or ever will be. Remember that the ungodly are at home in the present world order, men of earthbound vision, trusting in earthly security, and unable to look beyond the things that are seen and temporal. But the Christian, while not disengaged from this world, is not at home here either. We're sojourners passing through, and that principle, if we would only take the time to meditate upon it, should have an impact upon our lives greatly. We've already read from 2 Peter 3, 1-10, where he warns that the heavens and earth will be dissolved. But I want you to listen to what he says starting in verse 11. He begins to apply that truth to the lives of believers, and here's what he says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, given that everything is to be dissolved, as I have just said, here's the question he asks the Christian. What sort of people ought you to be? How should your life be then? given the truth of this. He goes on to say that we should live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what sort of people ought you to be in light of the eschatology of the Bible? You should be pursuing holiness and godliness. And where should your hope reside? Your hope should reside in the promises of God concerning the arrival of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what you should be living for. Thirdly and lastly, by way of application, uh, this passage should compel us to trust in Christ. Here we see uh, portrayed before us what it is that our sins deserve. Uh, We must be found in Christ if we are to live. To be found not in Christ is to come under the condemnation and wrath of the Father and of the Lamb. I want you to notice that the question is asked at the end of the passage that we've been been considering. The the idolaters, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they're calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I mean, this is a terrible thing to be subject to the wrath of God. Uh, for the great day of the wrath has come, and, who, and, and what is the question that is asked? And who can, and who can stand? Uh, the answer is implied: no one can stand. 
For no one is found to be righteous apart from having the righteousness of Christ given to them and received by faith. When Christ came for the first time, He did not come to judge or to condemn. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John 3, 16-17 But here we must recognize that when Christ returns again, whenever that day is, He will come to judge the ungodly. May we be found trusting in Him and clothed in His righteousness on that day. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, as we consider um, the vision shown to John and delivered to us through him, Lord, we do confess that it is a terrifying thought to come under the wrath of the living God and of Christ. Lord, we pray for those who do not know Christ that they would, so that they might be found in him righteous, not subject to his wrath, but rather receiving uh, the full adoption of, of sons and the full glory that is associated with that. Lord, I pray for each of us, Lord, in this room, that we would cling to Christ faithfully into the very end, Lord. May our faith be true. May we be sincere. May we, may we be living as Christians in this world, not for this world, but for the world to come. Lord, help us to pursue faithfully holiness and godliness in our lives. Lord, help us to fix our hope fully upon the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Lord, I pray that you would assist us as we seek to apply these truths to the details of our lives. We say these things in Christ's name.